Welcome to Crime and Fiction. I'm here with Brooke Dacus, and my name is Mary Singh. This is where we tell you all about the crimes and all about the fictions. Brooke, let's go. All right, Mary. Well, I think that we want to start off with going over some of the things that have happened this week. And obviously, we know the biggest thing that just happened was Ruth Justice, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, recently passed away. Yeah, that's all sad and stuff, but I mean, I think what we really want to know, and we'll get to introductions here in a second, that's sad, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, trailblazer for all women, but is Trump going to appoint someone? That's what we're wondering. You know, I just actually pulled up an article, and Trump said he is going to appoint a female to the Supreme Court next week. Is that the right thing to do right now? Why not? I th- who I can't remember who was in an election year who decided not to appoint someone when a different Supreme Court justice died. I can't remember that. You know, I honestly don't have the facts in front of me, and I'm not good with that historical type of stuff. Weren't you a major I, in history? Shouldn't I think you know that this? was actually President Barack Obama who decided not to. No, he actually wanted to appoint someone, but then I think the Republicans blocked that effort. Okay. Well, you know, beside the political aspect of all this stuff, I mean, let's, let's uh, introduce ourselves a little bit. Brooke, tell the audience who you are, why we're here and what we're going to discuss. Well, that's probably a smart idea to do. My name is Brooke. I am a practicing criminal defense attorney. I was once, a prosecutor said so that's why I say I'm a reformed prosecutor and I am here with Mayor Singh who is also a criminal defense attorney. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. So you <laughs> You're so welcome. Again, I appreciate that. So you were a prosecutor? Yes, I was a prosecutor for a period of time and then I decided to switch over to criminal defense. Okay, so just in case folks don't know at home, I'm not going to dumb this down too much. If you're listening to this, then you know. But a prosecutor is someone that works for the government and that tries to prove someone is guilty of committing an offense. Right. So let's say that you stole something from a store. I My job as a prosecutor is to see that you are convicted of probably a theft. So that that goes on your record the rest of your life. So my goal yeah. is to ruin your life, essentially. Wow, that's a pretty change. <laughs> not necessarily without a problem. Not necessarily. That's a bad no. thing to say, but to hold you accountable for the offense or for what you yeah. did. And 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 that's a very vital aspect of our society. Of course, it's the, it's, it's the rule of law. Of course, it's it's a system of checks and balances, and without prosecutors, without defense attorneys, without judges, our system wouldn't work. Yeah. And so you shifted gears about a year or so ago, and you decided to put on the defense hat. So when you say defense, are you now defending those uh, same folks that you were once prosecuting? Not the same people, but, you know, you get what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, no, you, I get what you're saying. But, yes, in, in effect, I, I am defending people that are committing crimes, and that's... got fix you there or correct you you are defending people that are accused of committing crimes that's a very big difference in what you just said you're right and that is my bad i should say allegedly committed crime yeah um and so that that was a a pretty big change in your life when you when you decided to do that um and so but it gives you a couple different 
you know, aspects of viewing what's going on with, with a criminal case. What do you mean? Well, I mean, you prosecuted people, and now you defend people. You've been on both sides. Uh, yeah, 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 exactly. That's exactly what I'm doing. So I've seen, uh, I've seen how the justice system works, and one of the reasons that I did decide that I wanted to become a criminal defense attorney as opposed to a prosecutor is because, you know, I think a lot of us grow up seeing law enforcement, and I know myself, I was raised yeah. with law yeah. enforcement. Well, what does your dad do? Or what did he do for many years? Well, you know, my dad, so I was raised, my dad is a drug enforcement agent, DEA. So, you know, law enforcement, you always respect them. They are the people you go to when there's a problem. They are the good guys in society. That's what I've learned. And I think that's what many of us have learned, have many of us grown up with. And that's still kind of the idea that's ingrained within society. Don't you agree? Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. No. I, th- I think that's a great thing. I think we need to respect everybody. Uh, I think respect is lacking these days. But okay, so that's your introduction. Well, no, no, no. So let me finish. But go ahead, go ahead. So go ahead. So you know, we're not in time crunch at all. Go ahead. <laughs> cool. Thanks. So I think you know, with this whole idea that law enforcement is a vital aspect of our society, which I still believe that it is. It's important. <laughs> But I think I also kind of grew up with the idea that they can also do no wrong. And I went into law school thinking that and went in as a prosecutor thinking that. And I also started to see some things that were not okay. And the prosecutors were defending actions on the part of the police that just should not be defended or justified. And so... That's one of the reasons that I just... So you didn't see much of a separation between the prosecutor and law enforcement? Right. Okay. Uh, Why is that wrong? Is it wrong? And why is it wrong, if it is? I think it's absolutely wrong. I think that, you know, if we're going to have a system of justice, we have to expect that our law enforcement agents and law enforcement officers are held to a higher standard and they're not going to well, the question abuse I, that power that they're given well, the and question, the oath that they take. Yeah, I hear you and we all hear you. Okay. But the question that was asked is, why is it wrong when a prosecutor is not double-checking, triple-checking the work of the law enforcement agency? Should they be working together or not? And I think your answer is no, they shouldn't be. But why is that? You know, one thing that I learned is that the prosecutor is not there to defend the police officer. They're not there to be their attorney. They're not the police officer's attorney. The police officer is actually supposed to be someone who is neutral, someone who is objectively collecting evidence, gathering facts, and... Investigating. Investigating, exactly. And if they're not doing their job, then someone on the other end, like you or me or, you know, one of our clients, are really going to get fucked over. And so... Should I not have said that? (laughs) Screwed over, sorry. Are really going to get screwed over. And so I think that... 
it's really important that the prosecutor themselves, they uphold justice by making sure that law enforcement does their job. Okay. Uh, I don't, don't see much wrong with what you said. Um, so that's Brooke Dacus, guys. She's been a prosecutor, and, and now she is a practicing criminal defense attorney. A um, little bit about myself is I'm from Lubbock, Texas, um, born in Dallas, parents immigrated to the United States, first person born in my family. Where did they immigrate from there? Oh, uh, my dad came from India and my mom came from one of the axis of evil countries, uh, <laughs> Iran. <laughs> promise you guys I'm okay though. Um, and I promise you my family, and my mom's okay too. Um, but we moved here, I went to tech and graduated and then I pursued a career in law at some point. And I've been defending those folks accused of criminal offenses ever since I graduated law school. That's all I've been doing. So I've got more of the, more of the, the defense standpoint in Brooke. She's got a little bit more of, you know, she can see cases from both ways and she prosecuted folks and she also, you know, currently defends folks. I think we've got a good, a good mix of opinions. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've just a little bit more about myself. I've defended juveniles, adults, um, Class C misdemeanors in Texas, that's a that's a, like a speeding ticket. And all the way up to a murder case, uh, juveniles to everything, and everything in between, too. Yeah, you've done a couple murders. Yeah, a couple murders here and there. But, you know, my passion really is just defending defending those people who society has really written off and uh, those people that just don't get a voice. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. but anyway... What do we have next, Brooke? So those were our, that's our introduction, guys. So going back to, I think the biggest news of the week. Ruth, oh, that's what we were talking about. Yeah, R- Ruth Bader Ginsburg. RBG. RBG, notorious RBG. RBG, R-I-P. Exactly. R-I-P, R-B-G. <laughs> Thanks for this the acronym. <laughs> yeah, so was she one of your favorite Supreme Court justices, Mayor? I don't know, you know, being very honest with everybody, I think Scalia was probably one of my favorite ones just because how raw he was and how real he was and and the principles that he stuck to. Well, you know that apparently RBG and Scalia were pretty tight. They had a thing going on. That's I saw that on TV the other day. Like, yeah, they're very, very tight, very, very close. And, you know, all those people, all nine justices, they all have to be close and tight. I mean, I don't know. Maybe they... I feel like you can be like fake with one another. Like, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I can be pretty fake with my colleagues, so I feel like they can be fake with each other. Yeah, yeah, you're right about that. But yeah, um, you know, RBG. I mean, she's a trailblazer for all women. Um, so, you know, I'm not sure. I haven't read each and every one of her opinions. Have you? No, but I think she has some significant opinions, I mean, and some significant dissents. So a dissenting opinion is there might be a majority opinion. Here's how the court court rules. But there, the justices also have opportunity to write their dissent. So this is why I disagree with the majority. And, and RBG has some, has some pretty good dissents. And one of the most, I think, one of the biggest ones, and I don't know if you've read it, was as in the Hobby Lobby, Hobby Lobby dissent. No, I haven't read that. Is that a newer case or an, old, or an older one? So the Hobby Lobby case, that was uh, that was back in 
probably, I want to say 2014. Yeah. Do you recall the case? I don't recall the case. Like I've said, you know, I'm a, I'm a, uh, was that a criminal, it wasn't a criminal related case, was it? No. And, and that was, that case was about the, the government not being able to, or not wanting to pay for specific contraceptives for for their women. employees. Exactly. I see. And so uh, Justice Ginsburg wrote a dissent basically saying that, um, I mean, any decision to use contraceptives made by a woman sure. covered under Hobby Lobby I see. or any plan will not be propelled by the government. So yeah. it's, I mean... Yeah, and, and other notable opinions and dissents that she had had to do with gender discrimination, abortion rights, search and seizure. And this is me just doing a quick search, guys. You know, um, you know, you know, but more importantly, I think it's more what she, what she stood for and what she's done for, for the girl sitting at home that's five years old right now and, and dreaming about being on the Supreme Court justice bench. That's what she's really done. What has she done for that person? You know, our parents, our moms, maybe they didn't have a woman to look up to, you know. Well, now they do, or or they did, and they will forever. What uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, Sotomayor, Keegan, those are all the female folks on the that once served or are on the bench. Whether you agree with their policies or not, you've got to agree that it's a great example for number one for for the little girls growing up, for the ladies and the women, everybody in law school. No, I, and I think I think that it, it probably is. You know, one of the she's been a great advocate for women, and I know you know there was a there was a movie that came out about her. Was it last year, a couple of years ago? And it was about her, you know, yeah. trials and tribulations of going through law school, getting yeah. a job, and you know, really not being able to do that, or having not not being able to do that, but having a difficult time as a woman. And as a woman myself, I can really relate to that. I know it's twenty twenty, and we think oh. Well, lots of women are in law school. Lots of women are successful attorneys. But I can specifically recall there was a class that I had in law school. And one, and I don't even, honestly, I can't even tell you what the topic was or how it even came up. But I can tell you the guy got up and said that women belong at home and they don't belong here in law school. And I remember every What year was that? And that was 2014. That's when you were in law school. That's when I was in law school. Did that guy get thrown out or <laughs> what happened to him? Well, I can tell you. What, a, got, what a brave idiot. <laughs> I can tell you. I know all the females in that class were pretty shocked by what he said. What a brave and idiot. I do not know whether or not he got jumped outside class, but... Um, there were some pretty pissed off women. And honestly, a lot of those sentiments still exist. You know, I know there's a yeah. lot of, you know, in criminal defense, especially there's, it's a male dominated field. There's a lot of those good old boy clubs still. That's true. It's very true. And it's, it's, you know, it's still hard for women to kind of break that barrier, but I know RBG did that. And I think that's just, you know, I look up to her for that and that's, Regardless of what her politics are, how she 
read the Constitution. People may disagree with that, may agree with it, but I think what she did as a woman and how she went through her life. Absolutely. You've got to respect that. You have to, and and you've got to salute her and, and, uh, you know, the service that she gave. She dedicated her life to the bench. And uh, there are just, you know, issues that she faced, obstacles that she faced that no one will know, period. End of story. And you have to respect that. Yeah, absolutely. So... Uh, rest in peace, RBG. Yeah, rest rest in peace. Um, I know she'll live on forever in everybody's memories for the good that she has done, not only with her rulings. And I'm I'm looking past her rulings. I don't, guys. I'm not an RBG expert. Okay, I'm not. We're not. I, we're not constitutional law people by we're, any means. I am a, a criminal law person. And a lot of criminal law is constitutional law, but there's a lot of other things that they wrote about outside of criminal law. But you've got to respect what she did. Mm -hmm. So, Mayor, we've kind of got a a main topic today, right? Yeah, and and I heard you picked it out. (laughs) I did. So I'm I'm excited. I did. Well, you know that I picked it out. I did. You know that I'm a a true crime fanatic, right? True crime fanatic. And what, what is, you know, I'm not really much of a true crime guy. I guess I kind of live it every day that, you know, I get enough of it, of it at work and inside the courthouse. What is true crime? Well, you know, true crime, it's just, I, I don't even know. How, it's such a, it's very broad. It's true crime is going to be murder, essentially. It's going to be cold cases to new cases to cases that are going on right now. I mean, it's, it's. cases <laughs> that's funny uh, yeah, it's not funny. really funny but true crime is just like you know you're a crime junkie exactly exactly you, you like following what's going on in courthouses courthouses across the country i and i love it and i love knowing you know what how police you know have solved past crimes what they're doing to sure. solve current crimes um, you know, kind of the mind of the murderer, all this type of stuff. You know, I love those crime documentaries, right. those crime TV shows, Investigation Discovery. You know, I love that. Yeah, you do. That's all you watch. Um, right, exactly. That is all I it's watch. It's kind of like uh, the law and order culture that we've got here. That's kind of grown into a lot of these Dateline shows, ID. Exactly, um, exactly. And it's great. YouTube channels popping up, just, you know, recording actual trials in session posting those up on youtube i've got to admit i watch those too to see how the best lawyers around the country uh you know conduct themselves in front of a jury i've got to admit i do that too but i think you take it a little bit farther than most people and i think that's kind of you know where your passion lies well right because you know i think that you know you know you mentioned law and order you know there's other tv TV shows, and then there's also, you know, Dateline, too. Even the real even the real TV shows, the real-life or yeah. uh, documentary shows. Right. And, and they do document true crime and real cases. And there are going to be legal issues that come up. There's going to be a lot of different issues sure. that come up. Right. And, you know, your average person doesn't really understand 
Yeah. Why so. something happened or, you know, why a lawyer did this or how yeah. someone could ever have been found guilty or not guilty or whatnot. And even, and so even it, your average crime, true crime junkie, you know, they're watching something on whatever on TV or watching something online or YouTube. Um, they may not know what's going on, even though they love watching this stuff. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that that's it's just to understand the criminal justice system and how it works and its inner workings and why something may have gone this way or why a lawyer did this or how someone got found guilty. I think that just makes your true crime experience maybe that much better. That's a great point. But I also think that understanding the legal system itself. Everyone should know the legal system, period. I agree. Especially the, you know, the criminal legal system, you need to know it. Everybody in the United States needs to know the criminal legal system. I agree. Even, you know, even if you've never even had to encounter it, even if you've never been pulled over by the police. Not even a speeding ticket. No, I think it's still so important that you know how the legal system works. Yeah. Um, you know, they kind of say, you know, you really don't care about the legal system until it touches you. I mean, and that's so true because a lot of people think, oh, we have this great legal system. We have this great justice system. You know, look at other countries. They're just so, sure. like ass backwards. Some and corrupt country. Exactly. But then, you know, system. there's, you know, you look at our system and honestly. Maybe if you peel back the layers of the onion, maybe you see something a lot closer. And that's the problem that our system yeah. may not be that great. And I think that's kind of what we also want to uncover a little bit with our podcast, with our blog, with a lot of things that we're doing too, is yeah. that the system is is imperfect itself. And, sure. And so we want to talk about those issues that exist. And, and not that, you know, there are victims of crime for sure, and they too have voices, but there are also people who have been wrongfully convicted and people are wrongfully convicted every day. And we want to give those people a voice as well and and just kind of make this a really great platform. Well, it should be, I think, sorry to interrupt you, Brooke. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully that won't be an ongoing thing. <laughs> I hope not. I've got a problem with that. Full I know disclosure. you do. I get too excited. I think, you know, if you listen to it, and you guys tell me if I'm wrong. I th- and Brooke, you tell me if I'm wrong. I will. If Absolutely. you listen to, yeah, if you listen to other podcasts or if you read anything in the news, I think you'll see that the country has is very slanted toward pro law enforcement, which is good. It's great, but so much so that if someone has been arrested and put on trial, that they will automatically believe that this person is guilty of whatever offense. Absolutely. And I mean, that just kind of goes back to what we were talking about when we're doing introductions that, you know, I grew up with my dad being in law enforcement. And, and even if my dad wasn't in law enforcement, my mom, you know, police officers are your friends. They're the good people. They're the good guys. They're, they can do no wrong. Essentially, you don't, they don't teach you that, you know, the police officers can be corrupt. They can be just as corrupt as the bad guys. Well, it's not even that much. Well, no, but here's the thing, though. Those really don't happen. What do you mean? Finish your thought, and I'll go ahead and go on a couple, one or two minute rant. But go ahead. (laughs) Okay. What were you going to say? But what I'm saying is, my point is that, okay, well, maybe they're not as corrupt as, as the bad guy. Maybe that's a little bit of an exaggeration. But here's the thing is... Maybe the police 
we're ingrained to believe that the police are infallible. Exactly. Infallible. They don't not, lie. Not normal human beings like all of us. Exactly. That they're just kind of a step above everyone. That they're yeah. just, you know, they're on the pedestal. They're yeah. on the pedestal. Let's put them on the pedestal. Yeah. And so I think that if a policeman makes an arrest and then that person ends up, you know, in jail or they end up being, you know, on trial, that, you know, a lot of us will go in and say, well, yeah, he's guilty of something. I mean, he was there. He Sure. put himself in that position to do something. So he's not, we can't presume him innocent, but that's what the constitution requires us to do. So, and I'm going into legal principles that we're kind of getting off topic, but what I'm saying is it's, it's getting, I think that that people have a hard time seeing what we see is what I'm saying. Yeah. Or we have a hard time seeing what they see. Or maybe that's it too. You know, and I, and I think, you know, I think we all just need to see what we all see. And I you think know? that, you know, I want to hear what other people see, too. I want to hear their stories. I and think we just all have to see. <laughs> and maybe just just help us see, everyone. Just no. help us see. No, I mean, yeah, we'll talk more about the legal principles involved in each and every case. Yeah, um, yeah. But I want to get to my case because okay. I think it's really interesting. All right, so you found a really good true crime, true crime case. Go ahead and go inside. And... One of the officers observes immediately blood in the hallway on the floor. They see a blood trail and then as they see more blood, then they look and they see one of the back doors is kicked in looking like that's scary. There's been forced entry. This is creepy. <laughs> so. Forced entry is never good. No, it's not. <sighs> okay. So. So. Sorry. Did they, did you touch on this? How did they get there? Was there a call? Or did right, neighbors they, call? It, it or was, who called? No, no, no. Remember, it was, uh, they went there to check her welfare. Okay. Yes. So. So. Yes. So, so she'd the, been missing then, probably. She'd been missing for a couple of days. And so when they got there, uh, let's just, uh, okay, hold on, sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay, um, so, sorry. <laughs> okay. There's blood all over the place. Did it, was anything, (laughs) was there anything missing or anything unusual? This is very, it's my fault. Okay. Is there anything unusual about old Tammy's body? (laughs) Okay. Poor poor Tammy. And you can't even get the story straight for poor Tammy. No, I can't. I'm sorry, Tammy. Okay. So no, please get there. They noticed the trail of blood and it's, they end up finding Tammy's... It was like a horror movie, apparently, the scene. Yes. That's what the prosecutor said. That is what the prosecutor said. So... She was actually <laughs> discovered in the bathtub. Okay, can you Brooke. let me finish? Please let me finish. 
Okay, so this is a crime that occurred in a small town of Jeffersonville, Indiana. Okay. Um, how big is Jeffersonville? I've never heard of it. Jeffersonville is about 45,000 people. Yeah, and I think it's it's near Louisville, near the Ohio River. Beautiful area. I'm sure it's really, really green. Have you been there? I haven't been there, but I went to law school in Cincinnati, Ohio. Okay, so kind of familiar with the area. Somewhat. All right. So, Ish. Okay. So starts off with a woman. Her name is Tammy Jo Blanton. And friends and family had not seen Tammy Jo in a few days. And so what they did is they asked police to do what's called a welfare check on her. And a welfare check is basically when police will go to someone's house uh, or where they live to see if they're basically okay. Um, and so police went to Tammy's house and she didn't answer. And what they found when they arrived was Tammy's dead body in a bathtub. Where was a. Was this a house or apartment? Do you know? This was her. Tammy had a house in Jeffersonville. Okay. So she was at her house. Do there. you think she was upstairs, downstairs, or or is it unclear? You know, I I couldn't discern from okay, the article. She was in a bathtub. But they found her body in a bathtub, and what the articles say, from what I've read, is that they discovered her in a bathtub with a portion of her skull missing. And vital organs had wow. been removed. That's so sad. The police say... It's very unfortunate. It is. And police... Very spooky. It's a little disgusting, honestly. When did this happen again? So this happened September 11th, 2014. Okay. So this was all the way back in 2014. Now, remember that what why it's significant now is because the trial just wrapped up. Okay, so this case. So this case was pending for six years. Yeah, exactly. Was it a cold case or something? So, so we'll get to that. Okay. But police said that Tammy had been raped and stabbed at least twenty-five times. That's uh, vicious. Other articles that I had read said that you know she'd been dead in the bathtub a while and that her dead body had been raped. So there's different accounts of what had actually happened to her body since the time of her death. So it's not completely, you know, we don't know when she was raped, but she, but not sure if she was raped before or after she was murdered. Exactly. But let's she just say murdered. the yeah. defendant was also charged charged with abuse of a corpse. Okay. You mentioned the word defendant. Yes. What who is that? It, so when police were at Tammy's house, there was a man by the name of Joseph Oberhansley. And I hope I'm pronouncing that correct. I, To be honest, I don't know. But Joseph Oberhansley was at the house. And police... What's their relation? Why was he there? How does Joseph Oberhansley know Tammy? Yes. So Joseph and Tammy used to date. They were actually... Were they currently dating? No, they had recently broken up. It was actually prior to Tammy's death, 
they had broken up about a week ago. Wow. So the breakup was recent, and maybe that's the wow. reason, you know, for the you see this a lot. You know, you do. You see and it a so lot. police were at Tammy's house, and Joseph was there too. And he was acting nervous. And so police were actually trying to pat him down. Maybe he had a weapon on him. So he was there? He was actually there. Do you know where he was? He was outside. Backyard, front yard. And I can't tell you the the uh the articles. But he was were, there when the police show up and do this welfare check. They correct. Yeah. And so, uh, I mean, was there blood on it uh, anywhere on him? So he, here's what here's what happened, and here's what the here's what the articles. And say. why didn't he call? <laughs> That's not looking good for him. <laughs> well, it's so far, good. so far he he looks like he's kind of screwed. But he looks here's, guilty. He, he looks guilty. So yeah. here's what happens: police, they he looks nervous. They try to pat him down. He's not letting them pat him down. So because he's essentially resisting, they go ahead and arrest him. Okay. And you know that when you're arrested, police are allowed to search your person. Sure. And when they searched him, they found a knife in his pocket. Okay. And you know that Tammy was stabbed about if, 25 times with a knife. And the knife that they found was bloody on Joseph. Wow. So police took Joseph in and arrested him for Tammy's rape and murder. And they also charged him for burglary because they found the door to Tammy's house, one of the side doors, kicked in. Mm. So once Joseph was arrested, not long thereafter... So he was arrested? He was. Taken in? He was. I mean, does he give a statement? Does he say anything? Do you know? He does. He gives a statement. He does. Uh Uh-oh. And he tells police that he killed her and that... Okay, then. Once he killed her, he took her organs out and he cooked them up on the stove. Okay, so he says these things. He does, and he cooked them up on the stove and he ate them and that now she's with him is what he says. Does that sound like a person that is mentally stable? You know what? It sounds no, it doesn't. Like it's it sounds like a, a horror movie. It well, sounds and like that's exactly what the pol- prosecutors have described this scene as: is something straight, something worse than anything you would see in a horror movie. Yeah, and that's a, that's a direct quote from one of the prosecutors. Sure. From a uh, you know, if someone gets arrested, and you know the answer to this question. Are they held from, you know, from a mental standpoint, are they screened to see if they can stand trial? Exactly. So they are. And okay. that's what's called a... Like a competency evaluation. Exactly. Competency okay. evaluation. Someone has to be competent to stand trial. And let's not confuse that with, because, you know, there's also the insanity, insanity defense. defense. And yeah. so someone can be, have the insanity defense and that's an, an affirmative defense. For affirmative defense to a crime. Yeah. And what's an affirmative defense mean? It means that it's actually the burden of the defendant to prove okay. that, that occurred. You know. Gotcha. So that's good to know. It is. So 
Being confident so. to stand trial, though, that is not a defense to a crime. That just means you cannot be tried for a crime unless you, you are, are competent. competent to stay in trial. Exactly. That. So I think let's compare and contrast insanity versus being competent. In, in, insanity is a defense saying right. that at the time of the alleged offense, I was not thinking clearly. I'm sure there's a scientific or legal definition to insanity. I'm sure every state has a different definition. But nonetheless, that there was some sort of psychological manifestation that overtook my ability to think clearly and logically, and that is what led me to do these things. You're admitting that, yes, it was me. That's the insanity defense. But when I did it, I was not thinking clearly because of A, B, C, and D psychological issues going on. Okay. Right. That's insanity defense. Okay. Exactly. Now tell us again what it means to to say, okay, so-and-so, this person who's been arrested, is not competent to stand trial. In order to be competent to stand trial, you must understand the proceedings against you. So you must understand that you are in trial and you must be able to participate in your own defense. And if you're not able to do that... And effectively communicate with your attorney. Exactly. And effectively, so meaning that's part of participating in your own defense. But if you are unable to do that, then you are not competent to stand trial. So you can actually be completely normal at the time you commit the offense, but then be incompetent to stand trial. Sure. And so... And there are different standards for insanity and and not being competent. Right, exactly. And so so the thing is, is when Joseph was arrested, he was going to be tried for the rape and murder and burglary and all these different offenses that he was charged with. Sure. And then he was found to be incompetent. Okay, so when you say he was found to be incompetent, let's take it a step back. I mean, is that a jury that finds him to be not competent? How is he determined? How? What's the process of being, you know, competent versus not competent? Who determines that? Right. Well, it's going to be different, I'm sure, in each state, but it's usually where your attorney is going to file a motion for competency, you're going to be evaluated by a psychiatrist or some kind of doctor. Yeah, typically, not typically, but appointed by the judge. Right, appointed by the judge. Okay. And that doctor is going to make a determination as to whether you are competent to stand trial. And usually, uh, whoever the psychologist is, he's a person that does these type of evaluations you know, for many of the folks in this county. It's it's a doctor that works on a contract basis to do all these evaluations with these folks that may or may not be competent. Exactly. And so, tell me again, was he found to be competent or not competent? 
No, initially, he, in 2017, when he was going to be tried for this offense, he was not found to be competent. Okay, did they try the, was it in trial, then they figured out he was not competent, or am I mixing my facts up? No, you're mixing your facts okay. up. Okay, you take This the was before. So you take the lead. This was before trial um, at all. He was going to be tried, and then he was found not to be competent. However, competency was then restored. So you can restore, someone can then become competent. They can, you know, go through to treatment. the, yeah, through treatment. They can be treat, treated, they can go to the mental institution, wherever they go. Sure. And they can then become competent um, to stand trial, which in 2019, Joseph was found to be competent. So a judge said, yes, okay, you're competent now. Let's go to trial. So there was a trial that began in 2019 in this case. Okay. And a jury was seated. They started testimony. Not the current trial that Not just Not the ended. current trial. No, this is 20 so this is last okay. year. Okay. So, 2019 started first trial, jury seated, uh witnesses started testifying, one witness testified. They the prosecution called this witness. This was one of Tammy's friends and Tammy's friend, the prosecutor asked her, you know, why didn't Tammy ever go to the police? You know, there had been violent altercations before. Yeah. Why didn't she ever go to the police? That's a great question. It is a good question because, you know, I mean, obviously this isn't the first violent encounter that they had had. That's as, sad. As is. I couldn't think of a, I can think of a handful of reasons, but it's still a good question. I, exactly. And so Tammy's friend on the stand in front of the jury said that she didn't go to police because she didn't want Joseph to go back to prison or go to prison again. Okay. And so because of that statement, the judge granted defense's motion for a mistrial. Okay. Well, let's, and so let's talk about that. Exactly. Let's talk about that. So, so you're telling me that, so and so many people of, of this little small town in Indiana got together, put all the all this money and resources to try this case, and it all ends before it even starts, pretty much, with the mistrial. What the heck is going on here? What was so damaging about that witness's statement that requires everybody just to leave and start this damn thing all over again, apparently a year later? What's the legal analysis on that? Well, so here's the thing, and I know you know this, but a statement like, I didn't want him to go to prison again. That's horrible. Exactly. That's that's a damning statement. If you're a defense (laughs) attorney. That's not a good statement. That's not good. That alludes to the fact that he's been to prison before. Sure. This isn't his first rodeo. That this is, I mean, hey, who who knows now how many times he's been to prison? I mean, so that kind of signals, you know, if I'm sitting in the jury, here's the thing. If I'm sitting in the jury, if I'm a normal juror and I... He is dangerous. Yeah. Okay. He's dangerous. He's been to prison before. He's been to prison before. So I'm like, He's got bad character. Even if he didn't do this and he's been to prison before, I mean, okay, what's the harm in sending him... That sounds bad, but a lot of people think that way. Exactly, because it's like, well, or it's saying, you know, he's been to prison before. So, I mean, he probably did it again. And you're not looking at the 
states or the evidence objectively. Yes. And so yes. that's why there are rules yes. in place. Absolutely. <laughs> it's a it's a pillar of the American system that character evidence should not be admitted unless the defense themselves open the door to it. Okay. There are exceptions to that rule, but that exception was not met here. <laughs> no, it and was so not. So really the blame goes, I hate to say this, I'm being objective and honest here. Who does a blame go to? It goes to the prosecutor. For exactly. even for not discussing that with the witness beforehand, telling them that, hey, listen, if I ask you a question, there's certain things that you just can't say, and you better not discuss his prior trip to the penitentiary because that is inadmissible character evidence that will jeopardize this case moving forward. Exactly, exactly. And and that's the thing as a defense attorney. And I that's mean, what you did probably when you were a prosecutor. You, you discuss your case with the, with the witnesses and tell and them, hey, listen, there are some to. rules you have to follow. You have to. You have to advise them about, you know, things like hearsay or, you know, things like you, you can't say this. You can't let the jury hear this. And and you know what? It, it may have been a slip up. It may have been on purpose. Who knows? Yeah. I'm not going to say I wouldn't have done that on purpose. Try to get that in. Who knows? Whatever. But. Well, I mean, I hope not. And, <laughs> and I know the prosecutor did not try to get that in on purpose. That's not what we're trying to say. You can't control a witness. No, 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 can't. and you can't, and it was, that's not what you're saying. Here. No, no, and that's absolutely not what I'm saying here at all. That's not, no, 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 that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that you know, it's as a prosecutor, obviously, but it's the prosecutor's job to discuss the case with the witness and tell them, hey, there are certain things that you just can't say. Exactly. Exactly. So anyway, that that first trial ended up in a in a mistrial, and so then they went. And to, what's by the way, a mistrial means like okay, a big rule was violated. We've got to start all over. Everybody that was on the jury, sorry, you've been dismissed. You won't be on. You will never be in panel on this case again. Thank exactly. you for your service. Thank you for stopping your life for a week. Thanks for coming over here. Sayonara. Here's sorry. your t- here's your ten dollars an hour. Take it. And then we'll have to start all over again in about, a, I guess, a year. Peace out. Well, actually, yeah. So it wasn't that long thereafter when they tried again. But um, so they were going to try to uh, try the case again not long thereafter that trial. But Joseph was found incompetent again. Oh, again. Again. So he lost his competency. He did. Something happened to him where he... You know, whether he wasn't taking his medication or, or mentally he, some issue happened to him where a court-appointed psychologist, again, diagnosed him as being not competent. Exactly. So he was not competent. And then just recently, he was found to be competent. <laughs> really? Yeah. So So again, he's going from competent, not competent, not competent to exactly. competent. Exactly. So we're seeing a pattern. So a judge overruled the decision that he was incompetent and then the state uh, By the way, we should have discussed this a long time ago. So ultimately if someone is not competent, what even happens? Like let's say the it's so clear cut, apparently not like this case, which I don't know if it was clear cut or not. Where it's just so clear cut that this individual will never, never, ever be competent. What's the end result with the person who is arrested for committing this offense? You tell me. The end result is this the case is dismissed, guys. Okay. A lot of people think, okay, the case is dismissed because the guy is not competent. He got away with it. Let me tell you this from a practical standpoint, that person who's never 
competent, they are placed in some sort of mental institute for the rest of their life. Exactly. That's what it is. And if they ever do regain competency, okay, they probably never will. No. Okay. So that's what it is. But apparently uh, this dude here in Indiana, Joseph or whatever the hell his name is, Oberhansley, he, he regained his competency. He did. And so actually the the second trial just kicked off on Monday. And Monday testimony began with officers who testified to exactly what happened, that they were called to do the welfare check, that they saw the victim, Tammy Jo Blanton, in the bathtub with her organs missing, that they actually saw a tarp with tools, just just a horrific scene, essentially. And so then, obviously, the, the jury saw these autopsy photos, but I think the most interesting part of the trial was on Thursday afternoon when Joseph himself actually testified. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's always fun when the as a prosecutor when, when the defendant testifies. And that's kind of rare, isn't it? It's always rare. It's rare. Especially in a big murder trial. You never see that happening. It's rare. Um, and so Joseph actually testified, and he said, he said that he did not commit the murder. What he said happened was that he went over to Tammy's house that day, the day that she was murdered, and when he got there, there were two men there, and these men were hurting Tammy, but they actually knocked Joseph out, and Joseph was knocked out, knocked out unconscious. And when Joseph woke up, when he regained consciousness, he thought the men might still be there. So he picked up a knife, and then that's why he had a knife with him. And he actually saw one of the men stab Tammy. And so obviously the prosecutor was incredibly skeptical of this story. And so when he cross-examined Joseph, he said, you know, Tammy was stabbed 25 times. And you were just knocked out. I mean, how is that even feasible? Yeah. And you know, Joseph, I, I don't know. So I mean, yeah. he didn't really have an explanation for it. And and so, you know, Joseph really can't explain a lot. He prosecutor. Well, prosec- it begs you the, you've got to think, while he was testifying, was he really competent or was he not competent? Well, and that's another question too. But, you know, and then th- that's one thing prosecutors said is, hey, you know, Joseph, three hours after, you know, you were arrested, you admitted to murdering her. You admitted to yeah. eating her. And he said, well, I just I just said whatever the detectives wanted me to say. And honestly, that's, a, in my mind, a, a legitimate. For, for me, I would need to know more about this case. Realistically, if I'm if I'm on the jury, and I've got this guy saying these weird things, I need to ask myself, okay, has the state provided any corroborating evidence here? Which they have. Did they? What's the corroborating evidence? The knife found on Joseph. The ni- the fact that he ate her. There was he, the, okay. she like he fried up her organs. Well, let me ask you this: If someone fries up someone's organs. Does that prove that they actually murdered that person? What did the autopsy report say? What was we know the cause of death was stabbing, not frying the organs. Well, right. The ultimate question is who stabbed her? What what additional evidence that they have 
that prove that, okay, it was this nut job that did it. Well, like Other than him being there when they came. Right. Well, the knife was on him. The knife that stabbed her was on yeah. him. I'm sure they had a, you know, a medical examiner discuss the, you know, the wounds of the knife and how it was held and all those different things. Um, but I mean, did you, did anybody say that, Hey, we saw Joseph do this? Well, no. And it was just the two of them. Yeah. And so, so that's, what's hard. So that those are tougher cases. And so those are tough cases. No, it, it's a tough case. And so then in, in closing arguments, obviously that's so weird. I'm not going to discount the fact that this dude was eating her brain. That's so weird. And the jury probably put a lot of weight on that. Okay. I mean, if someone's capable I, of eating your brains, then I'm sure they can go ahead and conclude I, they're I, capable of murder. But, I think but, that they could slice yeah. your neck open. Yeah. But I'll just tell you that in closing argument, Joseph's attorney argued that his reason for, you know, I mean, he, he gave a very plausible explanation for what could have happened and that that casts reasonable doubt on the state's case. And then that's why he should be found not guilty. But the jury came back really in not that much time and found him guilty on murder and burglary, but they did find him not guilty on the rape. So the state That's did not, which is interesting, but the, interesting. So the state did not yeah. prove their case on that account. Yeah. Um, well, that, that's a crazy true crime story. It is crazy. That's and a crazy one. It's crazy to, you know, it's even thinking now during the whole, it's a bizarre one during the whole trial itself, Joseph had outbursts. Um, they had a hard time controlling him. So it kind of begs the question. I mean, was he it, really competent? Exactly. Was he yeah. really competent? So, I but, mean, we want to know from you guys, do you guys think that he was really competent? But yeah, I mean, you're right. And to really address this issue head on, your average person in that town in Indiana does not care if he was competent or not. I'm being honest with you. Your average person there doesn't care. Well, okay. they might they, care. You're so right. I would like to know if you're your right. average, maybe okay. the average person does care because if someone has serious mental health well, concerns, <clears throat> they should, probably should not spend the rest of their life in a penitentiary where they're going to have some, it's going to be a pretty, well, pretty dark, pretty dark future. Your average person cares. If you did it, then you get punished. End of story. I think that that's it. Okay. okay. And so, but what you're saying is true. And maybe, you know, you know, no one cares about, you know, whether or not someone is competent and whether or not they should stand to testify, you know, if they should stand on, on trial, um, your average person sees these as legal technicalities and we'll discuss more about it. That's what we're doing here on crime and fiction. This was a great true crime story that Brooke found for us. And uh, you guys let us know what you guys think.